1: This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Cavalry Audio.
1: Welcome to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. This is my new weekly podcast— that follow stories of murder and betrayal from across the country and across the globe. Join me as I investigate the motives and the madness as we attempt to shine a light into the darkness of the human condition. You're listening to Episode 1, Toxic. Toxic. This first episode is symbolic for me because I had previously covered the case. It's a love triangle that went horribly and tragically off the rails. The woman at the top of the triangle, Deborah Swiger, I felt I didn't do justice to her story. I wasn't able to really fully understand her situation. And that's a part of why these podcasts are important to me. The victims telling their stories. When I reached out to Deborah's close friend and business partner, I'm going to call her Jane to protect her identity, probably about a year ago, she wasn't ready to speak with me. I hadn't earned her trust yet, but she did want to speak candidly about her best friend and business partner. And after listening to my work on this case, she changed her mind when I came back to her.
3: What makes me want to talk about it now is I think the experience changed my parenting. I always was pretty assertive person, and my father reinforced that when I was growing up. He, let me give you a little background. He would say, I don't care what my sons do for a living. They can take dishes, but my daughters will go to college, have a career, and be able to take care of themselves so they can walk away from a bad situation. He said that all of the time. And that made me confident, you know, because he shared that with me. And I then experienced what could happen to a person who doesn't have that confidence. And it changed how I approached a message to my daughters. I needed to make sure that they knew their value on this earth. And that's why I want to talk about this. Because, you know, sometimes you can't fix the person who's already damaged, but you can stop it from going to the next generation. Or you can help your children be more resilient and confident in who they are. And that means you don't demean them. You don't do the certain, kind, the way that I feel like Debbie was
1: treated. Here's the thing. People are complicated. And Debbie was complicated. And Jane loved her and respected her very much. And she didn't want anyone to think that she was in any way speaking ill against her friend by coming forward and sharing their story together. But she's coming forward now because, through Debbie's story, she hopes she might help other women.
3: But I'll tell you this, she didn't deserve to die for anything. There is no rational
0: reason to kill somebody.
1: Because sometimes women don't realize the danger they're in.
0: And I've gone to many, many domestic violence calls, and I've counseled women uh, that, you know, this is this is not going to end well. This guy is dangerous. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to get out of this relationship. And as an outsider, that's easy for me to say because I have no, no skin in the game. I'm, I'm not emotionally evolved, involved with that other person. And I've, I've seen women know it'll be fine. I can handle it. Uh, everything's going to be good. And we walk away oftentimes just kind of shaking our head. Saying, "Man, this is this is not going to end well." Sometimes it does. Sometimes she gets out of it, or he doesn't do it, or you can scare him off. Planned out right from the get-go. He knew what he was going to do when he went into that house, and that's that's difficult to understand.
1: In the mid nineteen eighties, Deborah Swiger had been married to her second husband for five years, and they had a little girl together. Debbie also had a son from her first marriage who was seven years older than her daughter, Jenny.
3: Jenny was the light of her life, okay? Everything was about Jenny. It was also a point of contention with her husband that she was working so much and not being at home with Jenny. He, he said to her one time that you think being a mother just means that care is being delivered to your child. And that was just mean.
1: Jane says that Debbie's second marriage was on the rocks. Debbie was
3: raised as a Southern Baptist. Her first husband was a minister, and she had a child with that um, minister. At the time, he was 14 when she died, and he had been living with her and her second husband. So, she said to me one time. Now, I, I, I was not raised in 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 that religion, but she said, "I I asked her why she." she did the things she did, like she had several affairs, okay? Mm -hmm. And I, I asked her about that, and she says, well, I'm already damned. According to the Baptist, I'm already damned.
1: Debbie never elaborated as to why she felt she was damned. Outwardly, she appeared to have it all. As a highly skilled emergency room nurse, Debbie thrived in high-stress situations. And in her downtime, she was no apologist. She loved the finer things in life and having fun. She played hard, but worked even harder.
3: Blonde, looked like Princess Di. It was like she would walk in a room, every man's eyes went on her,
1: okay? And
3: then um, she's so imposing. But here's her thing. Her personality was amazing. She was funny. She'd take any risk in humor. It was
1: 1986 when Jane met Debbie, and it wasn't long before they became fast friends and business partners, throwing themselves into a new lucrative adventure.
3: We met right before we started the business in 1986, but we were very, very close because it was the whole launch of the business was very complex. Because of that, we spent a great deal of time together and the intimacy that happens with that is amazing. Okay, when you start a business and you have a partner, it's basically a marriage, you know, you never get away from each other.
1: Debbie and Jane realized they could leverage their experience as emergency room nurses into a business where they would provide intensive care unit and emergency room nurse services for hospitals on a contract basis. Debbie and Jane recruited nurses who were interested in contract work through their new business.
3: We were making several million dollars a year in profit.
1: But with any new business, it was a lot of hard work. And most of the money went back into the business, and they each put in a lot of sweat equity. So many of the shifts hospitals were clamoring to fill were the ones that staff nurses didn't want to work, which meant Debbie and Jane were on call a lot. At the time of this really intense working relationship and friendship, Jane had a bird's-eye view on Debbie's life. She became her closest confidant.
3: So... She had serial affairs. They were lined up to happen one after the other. All right. Mm -hmm. So she was dropping one guy when she met Bill.
1: We'll get to Bill in a minute. That's definitely a name you're going to want to remember and one you'll never forget. Because Jane says, even though she didn't always understand some of Debbie's choices, their friendship was paramount.
3: I asked her why she needed... To have all these men in her life because she didn't need them none of them you know we're running a successful business we're making money she's full of ideas she has She's fun loving you know she's i don't know if you know she's 5'11 and then she wore four inch heels i mean she was an imposing presence when you when she walked in the room so she had that charisma but she didn't have any kind of self-worth or any kind of confidence. And she was a good nurse. I asked her about it and she goes, "I, I have no idea why I do this. I have no idea. I said, you know, you don't need to do this. But she was always, and in a way, I think that she was looking to control those individual men. She had a power to do that.
1: Like most of us, Debbie had a shadow self. She knew the serial affairs weren't just about having a good time. Jane says there were many moments of vulnerability in their relationship where Debbie would tap into this deeper insecurity and share with Jane. But Debbie never in a million years believed that she was in any danger.
3: Every other affair that I knew her through, she was successful in navigating out of and getting something from it. I mean, serious, serious things from it, like diamonds, a Rolex watch, uh, emeralds. You know, she she was able to get stuff like that through these serial affairs and end it because those were men who were not like him. So she was confident that that experience would happen again.
1: When you talk about getting something out of it, I mean, I feel like she was doing it for excitement and just the thrill of it. And no harm, no foul. Fun to get yeah. gifts. Like she's not money. She's not doing the affairs for the gifts. It was, no. you know, right.
3: She felt like I'm giving you my time. You need to give me something.
1: I wonder where that comes from. I mean, we could, I could do, you know, sit in my armchair psychology desk here. <laughs> you know, obviously, people would probably say, "Oh, daddy issues" or something like that. But I think that's just too lame to say. Like, there's something there.
3: There is something there and I think it's something to do with how she was raised and how how her value, she perceived her value in this world. And I think she perceived her value in this world based on her her body and her look only.
1: In 1988, Debbie was in her mid-30s when her dimpled smile caught the attention of 48-year-old Bill Pollock when they were both on a flight to Hawaii. At the time, Debbie and Bill had never met, but they were part of the Air Force Reserves Employer Support Group organization that had put this trip together. Bill had recently retired from the U.S. Navy as a submarine officer, and he was certified to actually command a nuclear submarine. Now, as a civilian, he was also a Naval Reserve officer and a well respected business leader in the Tri Cities, which is roughly about three and a half hours from Seattle. He was also an executive with Boeing Computer Services. Bill had always been a high achiever, earning his master's degree from the prestigious Wharton School of Business. Even though Bill was more of the serious type, his brother would later describe him as a romantic, that he was the type of guy who would walk into the woods with a lover and carve their names into a tree with a penknife. You know, the whole Bill loves Debbie with the heart around it. On that flight to Hawaii, Debbie was still married to her second husband, and Bill was eight years into his second marriage. He had been married to his first wife for 17 years and had two adult children. But even so, the heart wants what the heart wants. Debbie and Bill fell hard for each other on that trip. When they returned from Hawaii, they began an erotic exchange of love letters as Bill lived three and a half hours from Debbie. Jane, Debbie's friend, says she will never forget the first time that she met Bill when Debbie brought him into their business office. She wasn't impressed.
3: Okay, so here's how I met Bill. Now, I'm from Washington, D.C., and my dad's from New York. I have an East Coast kind of attitude. Right, and i was 3 weeks postpartum i oh. met bill now there is a certain kind of social structure on the East Coast that is different than out here.
1: And he's from the East and Coast, too, right? He's
3: from New York. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So you were kind of should have had immediately like, hey, I'm from the New York. Hey, I'm from. Yeah. So, you know. You- exactly. But that didn't happen. I'll tell you what. So
3: the first thing that happened was he hugged me three weeks post bar. I don't know you,
1: dude. Yeah. What are
3: you doing? uh uh-uh. Don't touch me. And why are you here in this office? <laughs> You know, this is a surprise. on what's going on? And um, so he then proceeded to know everything. He was the authority on everything. Well, it just so happens that I actually was and still am very interested, learned, and understand computers. Okay, and back then they were even harder to understand. But apparently, he knew way more than me. Even though I, I don't, I, I can't explain it.
1: Well, no, so, I mean, I think I'm, that what you're saying, he's a know-it-all. And that was yeah. kind of how his he, his ego was fed.
3: Absolutely. And
1: so, you know,
3: I'm the oldest child. I have three brothers. And um, I don't know what happened. Something turned in my head and I was, no, you're not going to do this to me. So I kept con- being contrary with that to anything he said. And th- I don't usually do that to people. I'm, I'm much more gracious than that. But for some reason, at that time, I did. He stood up and walked out of the room. And I looked at Debbie and I went, that's not good. I said, and I told her, I said, the last time I was able to do that to a guy was to my little brother when he was like 14. And what'd you, know? you say?
1: She agreed. And was and this was the first time you had met him and this was after they had already started a sexual relationship? Yeah, knew
3: it was happening because she was dropping the other guy and the other guy was calling me off as, of, you know, wanting his emerald back that he gave
1: her. Obviously, Jane was being protective of Debbie, a fact that would never change. Jane says her gut reaction against Bill never wavered.
3: my dad was a policeman, and he taught me a lot of awareness about folks. And um, one of his rules was, you know where you don't belong. I mean, you know, trust your instincts, basically. (laughs) And my instincts were, this is not a good person.
1: But at the time, Debbie was in the thick of this really intense, passionate affair with Bill. And as they say, love is blind— But it was subtle at first, the switch from romance to control. Pretty early into their relationship, Bill became insistent that he and Debbie file for divorce from their spouses at the same time.
3: Bill was married at the time, and he wanted her to file for divorce at the same time he did. This was important to him. And I'm like, why? You know, I I was always the person like, no, 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 no. And then... She decided to, to get a divorce because of that. And that's when she bought the other house in Issaquah. And when that happened, then Bill moves in. And I'm like, what's he doing moving in? What's this? It's your house. It was the first time you were doing something by yourself. And then he's there every weekend. Every weekend. He's calling her and he's like controlling her and wants to know where she's at. And he's calling the office all day long while he's doing where she's at. And I'm like, does he work?
1: Does he do anything else? But this and what was and her response? Did. I mean, that that was one of the things that seemed to be really terrifying to me when I was going through all those documents is his ramping up and his obsession with her. Like, what was she mm-hmm. doing? How was she dealing with it?
3: Well, she laughed it off and she goes, I really, I really do need to wean him down.
1: And I said, yeah, but like how, you know, do you think she knew the danger that she was in? No. Remember, Debbie had had affairs before, and although it had gotten a little crunchy in the past when the affair ended, like the man she was seeing just before she'd met Bill, the one who had been calling the office demanding the jewelry back.
3: Yeah, knew it was happening because she was dropping the other guy, and the other guy was calling the office, you know, wanting his emerald back that he gave her.
1: But Jane says none of the other guys were like Bill. Bill had presented as a romantic, thrilling, exciting affair, but quickly started presenting his shadow side. He wanted to control every aspect of Debbie's life, and she had a lot of wonderful, exciting things going on. Meantime, Bill's business life wasn't going so well. For one, his frustration was amping up because after filing for a divorce, he moved into an apartment and he was desperately trying to find a job in Seattle so he could be closer to Debbie. But he wasn't having a lot of success in the job search. On top of that, Debbie had filed for a divorce from her husband and then bought a four-bedroom house on her own in a posh neighborhood in Issaquah, which is a suburb of Seattle. At the pinnacle of their whirlwind relationship, Debbie had considered buying that house with Bill, but she changed her mind. Debbie confided to Jane that Bill's jealousy was the reason she bought the house on her own. Of course, Bill wasn't happy about it, but even so, a routine was established. Bill would drive the three and a half hours to Debbie's on the Friday after work. He would stay with her over the weekend, and then early Monday morning, he would drive back to the Tri-Cities for work. During the work week, Debbie would have a reprieve from Bill's growing intensity over her personal life and business affairs. Before Debbie had started seeing Bill, she'd already acquired an investment property in eastern Washington with her friend and stylist, James. Debbie and James were looking to buy another property in Seattle together. Of course, when Bill got wind of this, he tried to control that relationship as well. Debbie has been described as a real go-getter, a vivacious, fun, and independent person who thrived in high-stress, high-stakes situations. Her job as an emergency room nurse was to save lives. She wasn't a woman comfortable with being controlled. She was a woman used to managing people and situations, which is all to say she was no shrinking violet. Even so, as the spring of 1989 turned to summer, Debbie expressed concern to Jane when Bill demanded she could only speak with her real estate business partner, James, when Bill was present. And as time wore on, Bill began to insist that James wasn't even allowed to call Debbie anymore. Debbie shared with Jane that she was worried about Bill's increasing jealousy, the danger of it, how scary it was because he had just started showing up unannounced, say on a Tuesday or Thursday night, which meant Bill had driven three and a half hours just to check up on Debbie. From the beginning, Jane had suggested counseling that Bill and Debbie go to talk to someone together about boundaries. But this latest revelation terrified Jane, and she begged Debbie to get out of the relationship, even offering the number of a psychiatrist for Debbie to get help. But Jane says, unfortunately, Debbie thought she could handle Bill. By early July, Debbie repeated that she needed to start weaning Bill, Her exact words, because of his jealousy, she knew it wasn't normal, she knew that she could have friends and business relationships with men, and Jane says she told Debbie how uncomfortable it made her knowing that Bill had a key to Debbie's house we know so much more about toxic masculinity, gaslighting, and that domestic violence isn't just physical violence. But back in the late 80s, it's understandable that Debbie, although very concerned, didn't realize the danger that she was in. The reality is, at best, she could have tried to get a restraining order based on his stalking and showing up at her work, but he didn't have a record of domestic violence or anything else. In fact, He would have been considered an upstanding citizen. As a former captain of a nuclear submarine, he was very accustomed to charming when he wanted to. And as Jane says, Debbie felt she could handle it.
3: Every other affair that I knew her through, she was successful in navigating out of.
1: The Murder Chronicles will return in a moment.
4: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go.
1: Handling Bill was no doubt Debbie's reasoning behind trying to minimize her budding friendship with Larry Sturholm. Larry Sturholm and Debbie had crossed paths when he was the public information officer for the McCord Air Force Base. Now, Larry was 46, super charismatic and award-winning local personality for Cairo TV. He was really well known for a segment he would host called Larry at Large, which featured offbeat, interesting and funny local stories during the nightly news coverage. Larry and his brother, Phil, both worked for Cairo. Phil worked behind the camera and would later become news editor at the station. And Larry was married, had been for 23 years. He and his wife had met at the University of Oregon. But Larry and Debbie's personalities jibed. They were both gregarious, fun, and enjoyed life to the fullest. And it didn't take long for them to start brainstorming ideas on a business venture together, which centered on the fact that Larry could help Debbie market a new arm of her business with Jane. So a person who was traveling could hire a registered nurse to be on hand with them if they were sick or chronically ill. Debbie explained to Bill that she was meeting with Larry on a daily basis to discuss this new business venture. But as you can imagine Bill wasn't happy with it and he became absolutely unhinged when a letter that Debbie had inadvertently sent to him in the Tri-Cities started off with Dear Larry Bill was convinced that Debbie and Larry were having an affair, even though Larry had been happily married for over two decades. In mid-July, Debbie and Larry went to Disneyland on a business trip with a television crew. Debbie did her best to reassure Bill that she was not having an affair with Larry, telling him that they had separate hotel rooms. But it was after this trip that Bill began tapping Debbie's phone line to try to catch her in a lie. Here Bill is explaining himself from a videotaped interview between himself and a forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Emmanuel Tanay where he explains his reasoning for tapping Debbie's phone. A quick heads up, the audio is a little rough as the interview was converted from an old VHS tape.
4: I had tried to tape some of the, the phone calls that she was making and nothing particular came out of that. And one How did you she, try to tape them? With a, with a, by putting a, a tape recorder on the back of the, the nightstand and... and with the, with the phone calls, and she, didn't, she obviously didn't know, know that I was doing doing that. Did you Did that get anything that was confirming or refuting your suspicions? Was there anything one way or another that, that came out of that particular... Mm-hmm. That uh...
1: Not too long after that business trip to Disneyland with Larry, Debbie casually mentions to Bill that she potentially has another trip planned. Debbie was purposely vague on the details, telling Bill that she might have the opportunity to get a standby ticket to visit a longtime girlfriend in Florida. Of course, Bill wasn't buying it. and He was seething with a jealous rage. To Bill, he believed that Debbie was incapable of having a business relationship without having a sexual one as well. And he demanded that Debbie cease and desist her business relationships with both James and now Larry. Debbie had many friends who would later say that Bill's behavior was off-putting. Like the time Debbie moved into her new house in Issaquah, a neighbor couple came over and invited both Debbie and Bill for a glass of wine. And it was during this neighborly sit-down that Bill made it crystal clear that he didn't want to be there, that it seemed that he wanted Debbie all to himself. And other friends would say that whenever Bill and Debbie would go out socially, Bill always wanted to leave early. And the overall impression of those interviewed was that Bill wanted to be the center of Debbie's world, controlling her every move. None of these friends called law enforcement to make a complaint. I mean, what would they have said and who could have predicted that if Bill couldn't have Debbie all to himself, no one would. Things would come to a head on Monday, July 31st, the day that Debbie was leaving to visit her girlfriend on that standby ticket to Florida. At least that's what she told Bill. Like clockwork, on that Friday before the Monday, Bill drove the three and a half hours, but he didn't stay with Debbie at her home in Issaquah. He had a military event in Bremerton, a Navy town roughly an hour and a half away from Seattle, and he'd been devastated because Debbie didn't come with him. Debbie had chosen to work until 2 a.m. Bill showed up at Debbie's house on Saturday. He wanted to talk to her about her upcoming trip. He was convinced she was going somewhere with Larry.
4: She was uh, had made a couple of statements that were, again, uh, weren't quite holding together. When I say weren't quite holding together, she'd say that she was gonna go and that she wasn't gonna go, and it was, it was back and forth, and how she was gonna go, and how long she was gonna be. But so they were contradictory. Contradictory, okay. and, and it just, just didn't seem to be holding together.
1: Debbie was going on a trip with Larry for two weeks she had it all planned out. Because she shared custody with her second husband, Jenny, her seven-year-old daughter, would be with him, and her 14-year-old son from her first marriage was visiting his father in California. In fact, that weekend was Larry's last at Cairo TV. He was retiring after he filmed his final Larry at Large segment that Monday. And Larry was bound for the Caymans as the producer for a new show. And Debbie was going with him, where he was also planning to help her film promotional stuff for their new business venture together. Debbie had confided to Jane about the trip, and Jane asked if she was going to leave a phone number where Bill could reach her. Remember, this was back in the 80s, before cell phones. Debbie said, I think I'm going to just tell him. She also added, I might as well get started with getting some things out of the house. She was referring to Bill's stuff that he'd accumulated at her home, the one he had a key to, and she added, and getting us more normal. Jane asked Debbie what she was going to say to him, and Debbie replied, well, I don't know, but I'm sure he's going to go ballistic. That conversation was one that Debbie was actively trying to avoid. She had scheduled a late shift on Saturday, getting home at 2 a.m. and Sunday, a 2 a.m. shift as well. And while Debbie was working these long shifts over that weekend before her flight on Monday, obviously she wanted to make money, but she also wanted to avoid having this conversation with Bill, having no idea that he had decided to take matters into his own hands.
4: One time she said it was pretty definite and then it wasn't very definite. And um, I found out through the airlines that uh, that she and, and Larry, and it turned out that what the airline said was, was, when I called and I asked if there were reservations for her on on one of those flights, and they said yes, and then they said uh, with Mr. Sturmel, and they asked me if I was Mr. Sturmel, and I said yes, and just and hung up.
1: While Debbie was at work on Saturday, Bill had called into her office and demanded that the scheduler get her out of working on Sunday. Debbie would later tell the scheduler not to make the schedule change, that she needed to work. She had also asked Jane to go out with her that night for drinks, saying she didn't want to go home. She knew that Bill would be there and wanted to avoid him and the situation. Debbie would confide wistfully, "'Well, you know, I wish that you could tell me why I do these things.' and help me figure out why I get myself into these things. Jane says the comment wasn't just about Bill, but also the week before, remember that previous affair, the guy who had demanded that she give the emeralds back? He had broken into their office and trashed it. Debbie's Saturday and Sunday, 15-hour shifts each, had sort of worked. She'd avoided having the conversation with Bill. But what she didn't know was that when Sunday came around and Debbie left for work, Bill continued to stew all day, marinating in his anger and jealousy. He was like a caged animal, driving around the city of Issaquah, waiting for his opportunity to talk to Debbie about her relationship with Larry and the trip. During the interview with Dr. Tanay, Bill talks about his suicidal ideations at first, but then discussed his other fantasies of killing Debbie first, then taking his own life. He stopped crisscrossing the city around Debbie's house and made the decision to stop off at a store where he bought a very sharp hunting knife. So Debbie's Sunday shift didn't end until early 2 a.m. on Monday morning. And Bill had to get up around 4.30. Remember, he had to get back to the Tri-Cities where he worked. That was the routine, that he would head back to the Tri-Cities three and a half hours away where he was due back at work. And Debbie was still sleeping when he left her house for that long drive back. And at some point on his journey home, Bill made the decision to turn around with the intention of confronting Debbie. But he made a pit stop at a restaurant that overlooks Snoqualmie Falls, a beautiful location where he asked for a table of one. And it's here that some believe that Bill ordered what might be considered his last meal. A gourmet breakfast of seven courses. Think high-end service that includes servers on little ladders where they pour maple syrup over decadent pancakes. After the meal, Bill drove to Debbie's home. Knowing full well she'd be at work, he called Debbie and said he wanted to talk. She said she couldn't because it was busy at work. And at the time, Debbie must have felt a sense of relief believing that Bill was three and a half hours away. She had no idea that he was actually at her house waiting for her.
4: Didn't tell her that I was back in in, uh, in Seattle and I wanted to basically to see her and I wanted to in essence surprise her and see if, if that would you know get get the truth out and we can resolve the where we were in the relationship what was happening. I was I didn't know what what I was going to do what I wanted wanted to do from that standpoint. You know I, I thought about killing myself. When you come back, yeah, you come in. I mean, you were going to try Right. You come back. Yes. Yeah, I I in the back. apartment. Yeah, I stopped, stopped for breakfast on the way, um, got back to the house in the spa and just kind of- And you make the telephone call to her and then you stay there, is that right? Yeah, I drove around for a bit and, uh, you know- Roughly around. what time do you come back? I was in and out a couple of times. It was, it was several times I came back in the afternoon when I thought she'd be coming home.
1: And what Bill didn't know was that after Debbie's shift ended that Monday, she'd arranged to get her hair done with James. Remember, he was her stylist and real estate partner. And after her hair appointment, they went out to a working dinner where they both signed papers on the purchase of another house together. Debbie told James that she was planning to meet with Larry when they finished, and then she and Larry would board a red-eye flight on their way to paradise, where Debbie probably thought she could leave all her troubles behind, at least for the next two weeks. Meantime, Larry hadn't told his wife that Debbie was going on the trip with him. After his wife dropped Larry off at the airport, he rented a car and drove to Debbie's house. Larry arrived at Debbie's home at around 8.30 that Monday night. Remember, she's still signing those papers with James, but she's told Larry where the spare key to her home is hidden. Imagine Larry's surprise when he's at the door with the key and Bill thrusts open the front door, beckoning him inside. Now, Larry and Bill knew each other professionally from the reserves. Bill was a respected veteran, and Larry had been the public information officer for McCord Air Force Base. So Larry knew Bill professionally, and I'm sure that Debbie explained that he was extremely jealous. But how could Larry have predicted that when Bill asked him to come inside, that he had taped hunting knives to the insides of his socks? According to Bill, he and Larry engaged in some small talk. He would say that Larry was obviously uncomfortable, especially when Bill began grilling him, accusing Larry of having an affair with Debbie. And Bill was absolutely insistent that Larry admit that he was sleeping with Debbie.
4: He didn't want to talk anymore about it. And I said, you know, come on, what are you let's, let's talk, let's figure out what's going on. And I said, you know, maybe Debbie will, will be here. We can figure out what, what's happening um, he was kind of indecisive, and then finally said, "No, that he was gonna gonna head on back." And I said, "Before you leave, I want to, you know, let's let's get get some more. Let's get this this straight in terms of what what's really happening. What's what you know? What are your intentions with, with Debbie?" And he started making uh, I'll say making light of it, or implying it wasn't wasn't a big deal. Um, and uh, he moved, he moved away. You know, I think we were in the kitchen, and I remember just getting angry and then reaching reaching for the knife. And we we struggled a bit and wound up over by the bathroom, and and you know, we fell into the bathroom on the floor. And then then it, you, know, you reached for the knife in your son. I don't remember whether whether it was it was whether I don't think that I reached for the knife first. I think I reached for him this day, because he was. You know, moving away and saying, it's not, it's not, a, it basically wasn't a big deal. And I was trying to stop them, stop him. And then as we went around the corner, as we were moving around the corner, I think it's when I, or at the corner, at the telephone, is when I pulled, pulled at least one of the knives off. From your side?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's tough to listen to Bill because he's so obviously self-serving. He's trying to mitigate what he's done. His intention from the very beginning was to ambush Debbie when she got home, and in that bathroom, Larry didn't stand a chance.
4: I fell on the floor and I was on, on, basically lying on top of him. We had the knife and we're struggling over the knife. The one, I, I'm, I'm sure I remember that, that the knife was, was up there by his by his throat, and it killed him. You know, the thing is, I can't recall anything visually about it. Uh-huh. Yeah, how do you mean you can't recall? Um, I mean, what, what you're telling me now, isn't that what you what you recall? It, I recall, but it's not a visual recollection. It's, it's, I don't it's, understand. It's, well, what do you it, mean? It's like, it's a, it's a it's, it was like, by, by feeling, it was, it was uh, there weren't many lights on. It seemed like it was a little dark. I don't think there weren't any lights on in the bathroom. Well, how long does the struggle go on? I have a, I have a hard time, you know, for, for how long I was. I don't. Uh, we struggled for uh, what seemed like a few minutes, but I don't. you know, I'm sure by now you, you must be aware. Yeah, you must be aware that many wounds were inflicted. I have I have not actually I have not seen or, or, or read that I've got that by inference from, from talking with with Mike and they, they talked about you know multiple wounds. Uh, oh, you know I believe. Uh, I mean there are many. I read the autopsy and I have looked at the pictures and there are many, many. I mean you shake your head. What I see? Yeah, you know, I. What I recall, what I I, I felt was, you know, maybe two or three or four at, at most.
1: Bill had stabbed Larry over 170 times. Then he left Larry in the bathroom with his head between the toilet and the wall. Bill closed the bathroom door. He went upstairs to take a shower, preparing for his encounter with Debbie. Debbie drives up to her home, I'm sure excited to see Larry's rental car in the driveway, not knowing that Bill hid his vehicle inside her three-car garage. As she walks into her home, she has no idea that Bill has just murdered Larry. How her stomach must have dropped when she saw Bill.
4: She called from, from from downstairs, and I stepped out of the shower and stepped into a pair of slacks. And put my put my put a pair of pants on, and was, had a towel around my shoulders. I think or something like that. And she came up the stairs and into the into the bedroom. So there was a knife. We both both knives were on the on the bed. Um, in the bedroom. In the bedroom. And she noticed she noticed them, and I, we were both standing. She was standing by one door. I was standing by the other door, and we walked together. And she said, "What's happening?" And I, I said, uh, "Something like I, I know about you and Larry." And then she she started saying, "Come on down, let, let's go downstairs, you know, let's talk about about things." And, and, I, and she said, "You know what? What are they for?" And I said, "I said I was gonna I was gonna kill myself." We went downstairs, and it was, there was some discussion about it, like who was gonna go first. Let's go side by side. So we went side by side, and who's uh, gonna go down first? The steps, you mean? Down, down, down. Why the, was there a the, discussion about it? Because the knives were there, she was concerned, I think she was concerned, you know, about... She was afraid. Afraid, yeah, afraid that it might might hurt her.
1: After descending the staircase, they move to the kitchen, where Bill demands Debbie admit she's having an affair with Larry.
4: Come on, that's, that's baloney. I said, Larry admitted it, and she said, then that's when she said, well, where's Larry? And I said, I think it's too late you know she said let's let's go talk this over someone i said i think it's too too late to talk about that and at that point she started to get more excited and still was denying that that anything was going on and i just i said debbie damn it come on you know there's no sense did you want her to admit it yes uh what would have happened had she admitted it at that point i I think i would have killed myself and and let her let her go
1: Bill stabs Debbie multiple times. She has wounds to her neck and defensive wounds to her hands and arms. And yet during this attack, when the phone rings, Bill lets Debbie answer, making sure she puts it on speakerphone. It's James. He's hoping to catch Debbie. He realized that after she left the restaurant, that even though they had both signed the purchase agreement for their new property it needs to be notarized. And James's neighbor just happens to be a notary. So he's calling to see if he can meet up with Debbie somewhere before she heads out to the airport for her two-week trip. Debbie tells James that she needs help. In these tapes, Bill would say that Larry had admitted to the affair, but Debbie kept refusing to admit it. And then he says he stabbed her multiple times and slit her throat.
4: And then she got up and she said something like she was... She was dying, and that's when I realized what was what was happening. Well, uh, and she and she looked at me, and it said that she wanted to write a note to uh, to Jenny, her daughter. And I said, okay, let's let's do that. And went into the kitchen and found a paper and, and a, a pen, and she wrote a, or a note to uh, to Jenny.
1: More after a word from our sponsors. Authorities would later find the note, Jenny, I love you, Mom. This goodbye letter to her seven-year-old daughter was smeared with her mother's blood. After talking with Debbie, but not fully understanding what was happening there, James called Jane at around 10.15 and said, something terribly wrong was going on there at Debbie's house. Jane immediately called Debbie's house and let it ring nine times. She was just about to hang up when someone picked up the phone on the other end.
3: So I called her and she picked the phone up and nurses are always going to be observant. So she picked the phone up and she said help several times and her her voice was wet and gurgly. So I'm like, holy moly. I mean, it's like I instantly knew what happened because I worked in the ER, right? Gagging on something and she's not... You know, I instantly knew that he had hurt her.
1: In the background, Jane heard Bill derisively saying, Yeah, go ahead. Get help. Jane was furiously dialing 911 and told her husband to grab his gun and go over to Debbie's house to help her.
3: The craziest, stupidest thing I've ever done is I hate guns. And my husband had a gun that I never used. And I turned to him and I said, Get your gun and go to Debbie. Something's wrong. Something's desperately wrong. Now my we had just sent the babysitter home and my daughter is six months old. And so one of us had to be there, right? So I thought he was a better one to go than me at the
1: time. Jane's husband wouldn't take his gun. He took a big flashlight. They lived just a couple miles away, and he raced toward Debbie's home. Pulls in the
3: driveway and he sees the door open on her jaguar. And the light on and the front door open he goes he doesn't go in He then sees two people holding on to each other and he said this just like this they could have been dancing but i don't think so and um, in the framed in the doorway light bill let her go and said just go bit and when we went together, she was holding her throat so that she could talk because she knows anatomically that's how you do it, even though her trachea is cut. And she, her whole dress had turned the color of blood. Her whole, you couldn't tell what color her dress was. It was covered with blood.
1: Jane's husband helps Debbie into the back seat of his car. And he asks her, did Bill do this to you? Debbie replied, yeah, that son of a bitch.
3: He asked her what hospital he should, he should go to and she said Overlake and um, so he's driving to go to Overlake and he knows from listening to her they're not going to make it. So he pulled over to a house with a light on and asked him to call the police because, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. The people in the house were scared but they did call the police and then um, he... He pulled Debbie out of the car and had her on the ground. And when the police got there, he said, "Help me! Don't you don't you know first aid?" I was like, "Don't you know first aid? This is way beyond first aid, okay?" Yeah. I'm sure they didn't know if he was the perpetrator or not, so they did not help, and she died while he was holding her.
1: When the aid car arrived at the scene, they rushed Debbie to the hospital.
3: They did bring her um, into the ER, where we had people working, people who knew who she was. could not tell who she was when they were working on her in the ER, doing CPR, until they saw her diamond-encrusted Rolex. Then everybody knew who it was.
1: Meanwhile, Jane is sick with worry, but not paralyzed in fear. After she sent her husband to help Debbie, she was able to get that babysitter to come back, and then she speeds away toward Debbie's, where she discovers a horrific scene.
3: The front door was open, there was the jag with the door open, the lights are out. no husband, no car. I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? Did
1: you go inside?
3: Yes, stupid me. Did
1: you see Larry?
3: I did not see Larry was behind the closed door i did not know that at the time God. stepped in to the house entryway i saw the knife which i described to the police and i started to walk in she had white carpet white furniture with blood everywhere and i went are you stupid why are you walking in here and then i heard a creak of the stairs and i hauled out of there i was like whoa
1: Jane, now not just worried about her friend, but also her husband's safety. She didn't know who the blood belonged to, but as she sped down the side streets, desperate to find her husband, desperate to find Debbie, she was certain that whatever had taken place there had happened at the hands of Bill. Bill would later claim that he called 911 for Debbie to get her help. For,
4: for Debbie. What, what kind of help? Medical help or whatever. I, I think at that point I did already really spare myself. myself. Uh, you did stab yourself? Yes. Yeah. well, uh, In the throat uh, with one of the knives, which I think had, and I can't recall which knife was which, but I just remember was I had a hard time trying to get the knife to cut. It seemed like it was a dull knife, so I had to be the older one. And I think I'd given her. She had gotten the uh, the other knife where she said that she was going to she was going to stab me. And I said, that's fine. Go ahead. Um, well, you gave her a knife? Yes. And did she stab you? No. She was going to stab you to protect herself or to what? The, like a a double suicide or
1: whatever. Debbie didn't want to kill herself. She was a woman who had had the strength and will to live, despite being viciously stabbed over a hundred times. There's no doubt she had fought Bill tooth and nail. Her body reflected that battle, with multiple deep knife wounds to her hands, and the wounds to Debbie's neck were so deep her trachea was exposed. And yet, she was composed enough to hold her trachea in place so she could ask for help. And Bill, the man who had savagely stabbed two people three hundred times, says he was having a hard time piercing his own flesh.
4: I took the knife and, and cut my throat, and I couldn't get it in. I remember trying to trying to get the knife to, to go in and, and, and hitting it like that a couple of times to try and make it penetrate. Then, then well, uh, making making the cuts here with the, with, the, with the knife on the wrist. You, you're pointing to your wrist, yeah.
1: Jane says when Debbie cried out for help over the phone, Bill had said help in a mocking, sarcastic tone that was emotionless.
4: comment made that when you said help, you made it in a mocking tone. Do you know what's meant by that? Mocking? Um, I, don't, I don't recall. The only thing I think of is that my throat was cut too, so my voice was, was probably either Force or whatever, but it wasn't was, it was
1: Bill explained that his final act that night was to slash his wrist, then fill the bathtub with water in the upstairs bathroom to die. Given that Debbie's friends had called 911, it hadn't taken the police long to get to her house. And obviously the officers didn't know what had happened, but there was so much blood and they knew that Debbie had died that they were dealing with a homicide. I talked with retired King County Sheriff John Urquhart.
0: Well, when this, uh, this double homicide occurred, I was a patrol officer. Uh, I, I was not in the area when the crime occurred. Uh, I didn't work on the case either as a patrol officer or a detective, but I was certainly aware of it. And as time gone has gone on, the ramifications of this case have reverberated through the sheriff's office to this very day. And we have policies in place that came out of this double homicide.
1: Debbie's home was a gory scene, which told a horrific tale on the wall-to-wall white carpet. It was overkill. One of the officers on the scene would later say that the smell of blood was so thick in the air from the slaughter that it reminded him of a hunter's deer camp. When that officer arrived at the scene, the house was eerily silent. As they checked the bathroom, in their duty to secure the scene, they tried to open up that bathroom door, but it would only budge a couple of inches. Larry's body was blocking the door, and they reached down and checked his leg for a pulse and didn't find any. They were looking for the murderer, but there wasn't anyone hiding downstairs. So they crept up to the second floor, guns drawn. Their job was to secure the scene for the homicide detectives and CSI. When they got to the second floor and opened up the bathroom, they saw a third body, submerged in bloody water, except a man's face was sticking out and his feet were propped up outside the tub. His skin was gray. Someone checked for a pulse and couldn't find one. Like the man downstairs, he was dead. So they holstered their guns, realizing that they were looking at a triple homicide or a double homicide and suicide. Sheriff Urquhart says those first officers on the scene know they are to touch nothing and to step out the way they came in to preserve the scene.
0: So if you imagine a crime scene, if you look at the body, for example, if you're talking about a homicide and then draw concentric circles around that body farther out and farther out and farther out. And in a house, maybe you're all the way outside to the street and the detectives will start on the street working their way in, looking for evidence, documenting evidence by and that by drawing it, or now they, they photograph it and they use uh, video photography as well as still photography. And they work their way in and they collect that evidence, whether it's DNA or whether it's a cigarette butt or a gun or whatever it is, collect that until they get back to the body. And then when they've done all of that and they're ready to move the body, then they call in the medical examiner. Medical examiner comes in, picks the body up, And maybe there's a knife or a gun or more bloodstains or whatever it is underneath the body. Then they document that. So that, in a nutshell, that's how a homicide investigation is conducted.
1: Early that morning, detectives were going over the crime scene. As Sheriff Urquhart explained, nothing had been moved. The lead detective is inspecting the bathroom upstairs. The dead man, we know is Bill, is still in the bathtub in the bloody water. Nothing has been disturbed. They're still trying to piece together what happened. This is eight hours later, and it's quiet. Around 6.40 in the morning, when there was a cough and a sputtering, a small splashing sound coming from the bathtub. The hair stood on the detective's neck when the man they believed was dead rose up.
0: Two detectives are up in that bathroom lifting evidence off the the bathroom sink and their dead victim suddenly sits up in the bathtub and is not dead anymore. And it scared the absolutely living you-know-what out of these two detectives.
1: Bill had survived his self-inflicted wounds, and as a result of this case, the sheriff's office enacted a new policy regarding homicides.
0: From that, shortly thereafter, after our, our internal investigation was done, and we looked at how this happened, there was a new policy, required policy and procedure that any time a police officer went to a scene where somebody appeared to be dead, immediately they had to bring in the fire department to make the decision. Was this person dead or not? Because they have more experience with that. They have the equipment to be able to do that and make sure that person has actually expired with the exception of obvious uh, decomposition or perhaps a decapitation. But in every other situation, the fire department has to come in immediately.
1: Another layer to this case was from the aspect of the media. Remember, Larry's brother Phil worked at Cairo TV as the news director. And this is back in 1989. Police are being super tight-lipped. Potentially a triple homicide is the definition of if it bleeds, it leads. So local reporters were chomping at the bit to find out what was happening in this middle-class home in Issaquah. And back in the day, reporters listened to police scanners, but it was all quiet. And the next day, reporters were still waiting to get the scoop. Eventually, a reporter from Cairo was able to get to the King County Medical Examiner to tell them that one of the victims was Larry Sterholm. Phil, Larry's brother, was sitting right next to this reporter when he heard. And he was the one that told Phil that his brother had been murdered. And I know at this point you're going to ask me, were Debbie and Larry having an affair? Even though whether they were or they weren't doesn't really matter or shouldn't matter. Some people say yes, others no. After the murders, the Seattle P.I. would quote Larry Sturholm's brother Phil as saying that Larry had a business relationship with Debbie that had recently become romantic. Bill was given medical attention for some stab wounds to the neck, superficial incisions on the left forearm with a vertical orientation, and some scratches on the face. He was arrested at the scene. Bill would admit to killing Debbie and Larry, but he would deny the crime of aggravated first-degree murder. He pled not guilty to the charges by reason of insanity. That's what the interview with the forensic psychiatrist was all about. Bill claimed that he was suffering from a psychotic state of mind, psychotic depression, and that he couldn't tell right from wrong. A King County Superior Court jury convicted him in 1991, and he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. In 2004, Bill tried to get clemency for his crimes, saying he was deeply remorseful and does penance every day by working as a tutor and mentor behind bars clemency was denied. And in fact, Jane says each time Bill tried to get clemency for murdering two people in cold blood, it was traumatic.
3: I was notified every single time that he applied for clemency. Every time he applied for parole. Every time he had military people, because he's such a highly regarded military person, advocating for him. They were raising money for his defense. They were doing all kinds of things to get him out of jail. Because You know, this isn't the real bill. Well, what do you know? You don't know what the real bill is, but I'll tell you this. She didn't deserve to die for anything. There is no rational reason to kill somebody. And he is where he needed to be. And I learned he died in October of 21, 2021, finally, from cancer.
1: Four years after Debbie and Larry's murder, Jane's husband died of brain cancer, leaving her a young widow.
3: And intellectually, we know nothing about why people get brain cancer, all right? We don't know yet. But I think this was way too much for him to handle. He was a kind of a creative guy, a musician, not a person who can really handle this kind of stuff. And for him to be exposed to that was really bad. And I didn't think that out. I should have been the one that went.
1: I asked retired Sheriff Urquhart how you make sense of a crime like this.
0: What's always been so interesting to me throughout my career, as you or me, as as rational, rational people, we always look at a crime like this. We always want to know the reason why. Why did this person do that? How can somebody act that way? We are looking for a rational explanation. And I, long ago, I came to the conclusion that more often than not, in these crimes, there is no rational explanation. There's something that, that clicked in them that we don't understand. We can never understand. But we want rationality. If somebody goes into a jewelry store uh, and uh, is attacked by the owner, uh, the bad guy is attacked by the owner, well, we can understand that. He shot him. But if he goes in and shoots him for no reason, or if he plans this out in this particular case where he taped the murder weapons to his socks before he went in there, where he laid in, lied in wait, waiting for the next victim to come in, it, it's impossible for us to understand that as rational, normal human beings. We just don't get that. And yet we look for that every single time and we shake our head. How could somebody do that? And we're never going to understand that. I don't think we're never really going to understand why somebody ends up in that situation.
1: There's no doubt that Debbie was scared of Bill and wanted to get their life more normal, as she said. But she had no idea what Bill was capable of. Domestic violence is so complex, I wouldn't even begin to try to question what any woman who finds herself in that situation would or should do. But Sheriff Urquhart says, get a protection order.
0: I've always counseled people, primarily women, but not always, you know, get that no contact order, get that protection order. You know, and, and oftentimes they'll say always he's not going to pay any attention to that. And I says, yes, maybe he's not. But if he doesn't, we can arrest him. We can put him in jail. Maybe that will be a wake up call to him. Uh, of course, we always run the risk of us doing that. And that's a trigger. And then he goes back and he's worse. And sometimes they're afraid of that. But uh, from from my standpoint, it's always best to try and give him a wake up call. And there's been more than one occasion when I've had what I call a come to Jesus meeting uh, with one of these suspects. And I've told him in no uncertain terms to knock it off don't go back there, stay away from her. Uh, I'm gonna take you to jail. You're not gonna get away with this. Uh, And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But again, it's very difficult for us to, a stranger especially, to interfere in somebody's life uh, and especially their love life and tell them what we think is best for them. Uh, And they, they, more often than not, they kind of think they can handle it themselves even though they are nervous.
1: Jane says that when the case went to trial, Debbie got lost between the murder of a beloved local personality, Larry Stirholm and Bill's story.
3: She was misrepresented a lot. Typical, though, I see with everything. The victim is lost, especially when the victim is outshined by another victim that everybody knows, you know? She had no—I mean, she was really quite lost in there.
1: Yeah, she really was. I mean, it was hard for me to kind of even yeah. describe she had a her. a lot more
3: going for, the except what they were saying.
1: If you or someone you know is in a toxic relationship and needs help, please contact the National Hotline for Domestic Violence at 800-799-7233. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening.